You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Start! You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive, and here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. You know, it's interesting. I did a podcast with Pat Moran talking Buffalo last week, and it was the annual podcasters roundtable that we do every year. Shockingly enough, it's been the fourth year. I can't believe it's been that long that I've been doing that show with Pat Moran. I can't believe it's been that long since I've been doing this podcast. Five years now. We're going to be six here soon. That's insane to me. But we did it, and we talked a lot about similar topics as previous years and social media usage and metrics and things like that. And we talked a little bit about search engine optimization. Now, we've talked about this on the show before. Clearly, if I cared deeply about that, I would title my shows differently. The show notes would look different so that the search engine optimization would pick them up. But never have I spat in the face of search engine optimization more than with the title of this week's show, which is My Clonic Jerk. So I am going to explain My Clonic Jerks to you, but I'm going to do it by giving you an example first. You're laying down at night. You're hoping to fall asleep and you feel yourself start to drift off and probably excited about that. And then right at the moment where you think you're falling asleep, all of a sudden your leg twitches and you're awake again. And you're like, oh, come on. Seriously? Now I got to fall back asleep all over again? It's very frustrating. A myclonic jerk refers to, this is from the Mayo Clinic, a quick jerking movement that you can't control. Hiccups are a form of myclonic jerk as are sudden jerks or sleep starts that you may feel just before falling asleep. These forms of myclonic jerks occur in healthy people and usually aren't serious. They are different types of categories of myclonic jerks. The one I explained to you is called a physiological myclonus or a myclonic jerk that is physiological. Some people would call it a hypnic jerk. Your leg jerks right when you are attempting to fall asleep. Now, there are some numerous discussions in the medical community about hypnic jerks. 
They have found some things that correlate strongly to them, overtiredness, caffeine intake, things like that. But on a functional level, there's still discussions about what it is that causes a hypnic jerk. One of the conversations around it is about your body misinterpreting you falling asleep. The brain thinks falling asleep is actually falling. Like we use the term falling asleep, but we don't actually think about the actual verb falling. It thinks not I'm falling asleep. I'm actually physically falling. And then it sends a pulse to your body to do something quick, grab onto something quick, try and grab something with your legs quick, do something. You're dying. You're falling to your death. No, I'm not falling to my death brain. I'm just falling asleep. It's a misinterpretation. And that's the difference between your brain interpreting falling asleep and your brain interpreting falling. It's that close. That misinterpretation can cause a response that is completely unnecessary. It's so important that your brain correctly interprets what it is that's actually happening to your body. If your brain doesn't interpret what's happening, what's actually happening correctly, even if it's really close, even if it's the difference between falling asleep and falling, which is one word, if you interpret it incorrectly, you are going to respond incorrectly. The brain misinterpreted what's really happening to the body and you need to correctly diagnose what's actually happening in order to respond appropriately. That's where we're at in the off season right now for 32 NFL teams. You need to correctly diagnose where your team is if you would like to respond appropriately to where your team is. One of the reasons why it's so important to let the dust settle a little bit on the offseason before making any crazy statements about team needs or things like that is because eh, you might be misinterpreting it. The emotion might be causing your brain to misinterpret what's actually happening to the body. Oh, we don't need that. Are you sure? Have you looked at the roster? Have you looked at the contracts? Well, no. Well, then, are you sure we don't need that? Well, no, I'm just saying that because I want this thing more. Well, that's okay. You can want this thing more. That doesn't mean we don't also need this other thing. Correct identification of the issue is a huge part of the very beginning of an offseason, especially when you start to cool down after whatever it is your last game was. We do this a lot in player evaluations. It's been kind of a Gabe Davis week on social media for people. And if you remember correctly... The draft last year, I dropped a show called the 2023 NFL Drax, and it was about my dog, Drax, perfectly represents the idea of opportunity cost when it comes to the NFL draft. But during that time, we had a conversation about Gabe Davis, and the conversation started with, hey, we're talking about this wrong. We are incorrectly diagnosing the issue. It's not, is Gabe Davis good? It's, what is Gabe Davis good at, and how much value does that have? We spend so much time fighting over the wrong diagnosis. If you don't correctly diagnose or interpret what you're seeing, then you won't correctly act upon it. Slow down, make sure we're interpreting what we're looking at correctly, and then we can act. I'm glad there's a big gap 
between the end of the NFL season and free agency because it allows us to kind of get on the right page as far as interpreting the data in front of us so that we don't have a myclonic jerk. We don't have a sudden reflexive action that is based upon a misinterpretation of what's actually happening. We're going to take kind of an early break this time because the bulk of the podcast is actually wide receiver evaluation in totality, but I wanted to make sure I did that first, even though it's probably not the longest segment. So we're going to take a quick break. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam. The soggy morning jog. The why is the dog taking so long? Just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We talked about my clonic jerks, and there was a reason why we did it. Now, I'm going to take you through kind of the high-level methodology that I personally use when evaluating wide receivers. This is not all there is to it, but it is the high-level bullet points that I make sure I go through every single time I'm evaluating a wide receiver, whether that's free agency or whether that's the draft. The reason why I'm sharing this is because we talked about my clonic jerks. I want to correctly interpret what I'm seeing. And I will never do that if I'm watching highlights. And that's it. I won't. I will never do that if I just look at some metrics from the wide receiver. And that's, that's it. That's all I do. Or I just, well, he's not the other wide receiver that I want. Therefore, he stinks. Any position is broken down into wins. And you can win at different moments in a rep. And you can win in different ways. You've heard people say the phrase, where does this player win? 
How do they win? Because plays are four, six seconds long. And during that time, on average, obviously there's some that are longer. And during that time, you can win multiple different ways. There are multiple phases in that six seconds. And that's one of the things that makes football so interesting is that there are multiple phases inside those six seconds. And every single time that you run a play, you could win in a different way. And then eventually those wins start stacking together and you go, okay, I have a good archetype for this player. I know where he wins. So when it comes to wide receivers, this is the high level way that I watch them win. Number one, winning at the line of scrimmage. Release. Wasted motion. Variety. Hand usage. These are all the things I'm looking at. Do they win immediately? This is really difficult with a lot of college receivers because a lot of them don't face any press. And they get to the NFL and all of a sudden they face press coverage and they go, I don't even know how to process this. So some receivers in some conferences for some teams, you have to go deep to see them try to win against press because they may not have very many reps against it. They may have no reps against it. Big 12 and Pac-12 have historically not been known as wide receiver factories in large part because you'll see less press coverage in those conferences as opposed to the Big Ten, as opposed to the SEC, as opposed to the ACC. And so these things matter. But right off the bat, can they win immediately? Do they win at the line of scrimmage? After that, it's can they win after release? This is acceleration. This is stacking. Stacking being making sure that after you release, you can get on top. If you're looking down at the playing field and the line of scrimmage is running left to right in front of you, is the receiver on top of the corner? Can they stack them? Can they make sure that when the ball comes down, that their body is between the defender and the ball? Can they stack? Can they accelerate? Winning at the route stem is number three. Hip elevation. Are their hips really high? Can they not get separation because they can't get low in their breaks? Taller receivers sometimes struggle to separate because their hips are so high they can't get low in order to do what they need to do to separate. Acceleration out of your break. Do you lose all the speed because of your footwork? Do you lose all the speed when you go to the route stem? Balance. There are plenty of wide receivers and plenty of cornerbacks who struggle with balance and staying centered and staying balanced at the top of the route stem. And they'll do a break and they'll just slip or they'll fall down or they'll waste motion or you can just tell they're not balanced. They're frantic. They're not running under control. And the second they go to break, they have to kind of stop and run again. You lose speed. You lose the ability to separate. That's not good. Number four, winning at the catch point. Do you high point the ball? How are your ball tracking skills? Your catching technique, where are your hands located? Playing through contact. This is winning at the catch point. So right there, we have winning at the line of scrimmage, winning after the release, winning at the route stem, and winning at the catch point. Those are four different individual places where you want to see a receiver win. On top of that, you have things like competitiveness and blocking. Are they running to the ball on offense? Are they not? How much effort do they put into blocking? Do they care? What about on plays when they know they're not getting the ball? How are they acting? Are they just taking the play off? Are they not? 
These are the six main things. It's very high level, but these are the six main things I'm looking at when I'm watching a wide receiver play and I'm trying to say, is he good or does his skill set translate? And if you'll notice, the first four of them are individual places to win. You might think that when you say, well, he's a good route runner. Okay, cool. What does good route runner mean? To me, it is all three of the first points. Winning at the line of scrimmage, winning after release, and winning at the route stem. You say, well, he's good, good, good hands. He's got good ball skills. Ball skills, that's the fourth item. Catch point. How well does he track the ball? How well is he high-pointed? Does he have good spatial awareness? Does he have an idea of where the ball is going to be when it gets to him? Hand-eye coordination is part of winning at the catch point. But it's not as simple as, well, he made this cool catch. Okay, cool. There was an entire route that happened before that that you can collect data on. And if you're only looking at a little bit, you know what you're going to do? You're going to misinterpret what you're seeing. You're going to have a myclonic jerk. Because your brain is going to go, ooh, I'm falling. Nope, you're falling asleep. Oh, man, I'm really falling for this prospect. No, you're falling asleep on that prospect because you watched some highlights and you saw some cool catches. You saw him get open, but you don't know why. Could be a huge issue that you're just missing entirely. You're misinterpreting data and you're going to end up having a biclonic, a hypnic jerk. You won't be a jerk. You're just going to have one because we don't, we don't insult people like that on this podcast. So I'm not calling you a jerk. I'm saying you might have a jerk. Imagine you, you kicking. It's like a Steve Martin, you know, oh, jerk, jerk. It's a really, really bad old joke. So I hope that's helpful. I know it's probably very elementary, but sometimes it's really, really nice to just break it down point by point by point. So I hope that's helpful. If you want to add it to your thing, if you want to add upon, again, it's high level. I can't take you through everything without video, and I'm not a video person. But I could give you examples of things, but again, this is not the appropriate media to be able to go through things like that. One of the things I want to talk about a little bit is the narrative that comes up every single draft season that I want to get ahead of now. It's the, would you rather have the fifth best blank or the second best blank. This happens all the time. You you frequently heard it about drafting a running back in the first round. Would you rather have the fifth best defensive end or the best running back? Well, first off, the fifth best defensive end in the first round because I don't want to take a running back in the first round. But I think this answer is a lot simpler than we make it out. And the answer is this. Assuming equal positional value... Take the best player. I don't care how good they are relative to their peers in the draft class. Why would I care about that? It's like we're introducing a data element that doesn't mean anything. It's like, well, I mean, you know, why would you go to work on Thursday when you can have a s'more on Friday? That's a nonsensical statement. What are you even talking about? It's the same thing with this. Well, would you rather have the fifth best defensive end or the second best wide receiver? Uh, whichever one's the better player. I don't, I don't care how many defensive ends were taken before my guy. I don't care how many wide receivers were taking before my guy. Whichever one has the higher grade, 
assuming equal positional value and equal need, which we're doing because we're isolating the variable here, then take the better player. If the grades are really close, then all of a sudden positional need can come in, positional value could come in, but at no point should I be caring about, well, you know, it's the fifth best wide receiver and it's the second best defensive end. And I definitely want the second best defensive end. But what if the second best defensive end has a grade of 72 and the fifth best receiver has a grade of 85? We're making this unnecessarily difficult. Just take the better player. It's a logic that comes up every year and it makes no sense. The only way that it even makes a modicum of sense is if you're trying to say, well, I might be able to get one of those later. But that's not about how many people went ahead of you. That's about how many people you have left on your board. And you're not going to be making those calls in high rounds anyway. You're going to be making those calls in late rounds. So even if you were taking the depth of the draft class angle, that wouldn't come into play in the first round, which is usually where the logic comes up. That's where that argument happens with your first round pick, which is when it's least relevant. What are the odds that you get to pick at 28 and you go, gosh, you know, if we don't take this position now, we're never going to get it for the rest of the draft. But is, is there any circumstance like that? There are only five of them in the entire draft. That's it. You, you just can't get them anywhere. I mean, they're, they're just... They're going to be completely extinct. Sorry. If you want a wide receiver, you got to take him at 28. There won't be any good ones in the second or third round. How many years do we have to go through this before we realize that's not true? There are every single year great players taken day two, day three of the draft. Every year. And every year after that, it's always, we're looking for the next blah, blah, blah. We're trying to find the next Brock Purdy. We're trying to find the next Puka Nakua. Everybody, all draft long, is going to be talking about Puka Nakua. And the Rams getting him in the fifth round. I don't think it's a solid argument, especially not for your first round pick. Take the better player. If it's close and then you want to wait, need positional value, totally cool. But you're in the first round. Take the better player. We have got some emails to get caught up on. I mentioned to Chris last week that his email was multiple parts. And I wanted to make sure that I hit them all and we were already out of time. So the first thing that he said, the first bullet point was about the concept of being outcoached. When the Bills hit a slump during the 2023 season, I heard various people accuse Sean McDermott of being outcoached. I started thinking about that phrase and how it's generally used only to critique the coach that people feel underperformed, but we rarely hear coaches getting credit for outcoaching their opponent. I'll give you and Joe Marino credit because I do often feel that you give McDermott or the coordinators credit when they have a good game plan, but I feel you two are exceptions, not the rule. It seems most credit the players for wins and blame the coaches for losses. I'm not saying they're completely wrong in either case, but it seems intellectually dishonest to not recognize that both share a piece of the plurality pie. To get more specific, is there a game plan that you think back on in which the Bills won against a team with a similar amount of talent that you would say Sean McDermott outcoached the other coach? I would. I think that Sean McDermott has outcoached Andy Reid in the past. I think specifically about the very beginning of the 2022 season when the Bills played the Chiefs at that time. I think they had the appropriate game plan in crunch time. If you look at the statistics for Patrick Mahomes when he has an opportunity to 
get a game-winning drive or a game-tying drive, it is very meaningfully slanted in his favor. And they shut down the Chiefs real fast and ended the game. I think when that moment came, they were ready. And I think this is just me talking. I don't want to assume other people's processes. But I truly believe that the reason why you don't hear more people talk about coaching when it went well is because in order to make the concept outcoached actually viable, to say out loud, you have to know what the game plan was. And if you want to know what the game plan was, you actually had to have watched the film. You can't really tell game plan significantly from just watching the broadcast all the way through. But it's just easier to say, well, he was outcoached. Cool. What was his game plan? I don't know, but it didn't work. Well, that's results-based thinking. You don't know what the game plan was. So we use it mostly because we're lazy. And that's the truth. We use it because we're lazy. If I cannot properly enumerate to you what I think the game plan was based on what I saw, then I cannot say that Sean McDermott was outcoached or did outcoaching. I can't. Unless I'm a superhero and I'm able to correctly ascertain the offensive and defensive game plan one time through live from a broadcast angle. And maybe you're a superhero. Not going to take anything away from you. I can't do it. It takes me about eight minutes to diagnose a single play all the way through. Personnel grouping, offensive play, defensive coverage, all the stuff like that. About eight minutes for one play. And sometimes that's on average. Sometimes it's shorter. And then sometimes I'll be sitting there staring at a coverage. I'll go, click, rewind, click, rewind, click, rewind. What is this? What am I looking at? Like, what, what is this? What kind of coverage is this? I'll freeze frame it in multiple parts. I'll pull up my charts and I'll be like, I don't recognize this. I don't, is this some sort of weird thing? Oh, it's cover two invert. He was just in the wrong spot. Or, oh, it was supposed to be cover three. He's just in the wrong spot. It's hard enough to get coverages right when everyone does what they're supposed to do. When someone goes out of place, then it's even harder to understand what the coverage is because now it doesn't look the way it's supposed to look. And it takes you a million years to go, I think that's cover three and Dane Jackson was just in the wrong spot. And even then, you're only mostly sure. The truth is that it's really hard to definitively say someone was outcoached or someone did the outcoaching because... They don't really put the work in to know what the plan was. The second thing that Chris says was, I know you're firmly on team coverage over pass rush. I understand your stance. I'm afraid I side with Mr. Marino on this one. He's referring to Joe Marino. I was curious if we changed the question slightly to who is more valuable, an elite pass rusher or an elite defensive back, if that would change your answer. If all other players on the defense and the defensive coaches are all perfectly reasonable, which would you rather have? Does the answer change if all other players or coaches are above or below average? Does whether this defensive back is a corner or a safety or if the pass rusher is a tackle or an end make a difference? I wanted to further explore this. Changing the question changes my answer, yes. You ask me, what is more important as a concept? Pass rusher coverage, I'm going to say coverage. If you ask me what individual player is more important to be an elite player, I'm going to say pass rusher, why? Because coverage is a weak link system. The most important part about your coverage is not having elite players. It's not having terrible players. Because it's a weak link. 
if you have one bad player in the secondary, that one bad player can be picked on. If you have one great player on the defensive line, that person can still make an impact. If you have one great player in the defensive secondary, you could technically throw the ball away from them a lot more easily than you can ignore a pass rusher. Now, you can you can mitigate an elite pass rusher, but it requires a lot more effort on the part of the offensive system and the quarterback and the offensive line and everyone else to be able to work around an elite pass rusher than an elite defensive back. So as a concept, I think coverage is more important. But that's not the question. You change the question, which fundamentally changes the answer. What I want on the defensive backfield is I want no bad players. I don't need them to all be elite. I need none of them to be bad. One of the smartest things that Dick Duron ever said was you can't have too many corners. And he is right. I know he gets a lot of, you know, well, we punted well, and that was pretty funny. But you can't have too many good corners. I would just expand that. You cannot have too many defensive backs. It's not possible. Because if you have a defensive backfield that's full of good players and you get one player hurt and the person who comes in for that player is a bad player, you're in trouble. I don't need to have them all be elite. I just need to have none of them be bad. So coverage, I do find a more important concept. And I've gone through this before about why I think the concept is more important coverage than pass rush. But if you tell me I can have one, everyone's good, right? What you said was, Every player is perfectly reasonable. And now I get to add either an elite pass rusher or an elite defensive back. I'm going to add an elite pass rusher. I think it makes it more difficult. But if I have everybody reasonable except for one bad player on the defensive line and one bad player in the starting secondary, the first hole I'm going to plug is the secondary. I hope that makes sense, but that's that's the way I feel about that. The third thing that Chris said was ending the season on a disappointing loss. One of the things that I hear people say after a loss is that the Bills end their season once again with a disappointing loss. It feels like such a redundant statement. The Bills have finished the season under McDermott with a playoff loss six times, and they've done it in every way imaginable. We had an offensive no-show against Jacksonville, a second-half collapse to blow a lead against Houston, We were outclassed by a better team the first time we played the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. We had a coaching blunder for 13 seconds. We had a complete no-show, which was the Bengals, and a defensive no-show, which was the Chiefs this year. You know how I felt about each one? Disappointed. Sure, some of them had parts that were encouraging, and since expectations minus reality equals disappointment, the degree of disappointment is different. But they all fall in the bucket of disappointing because the season is over and we didn't win a Super Bowl. Even if you use your equation to quantify the amount of disappointment, the variable isn't the reality part, it's the expectation part. The expectations are different, and he's right. Jacksonville and Houston were less disappointing than 13 seconds because we didn't view the Bills as Super Bowl contenders during that time. That's the only way to make it less disappointing. And as much as I don't like the feeling of disappointment, I'd much rather view the Bills as contenders than go back to the drought years. Yeah. I don't know what else to add to that, aside from the fact that you're right. Expectations minus reality equals disappointment. But I don't want to live in a world that doesn't have any expectations at all because that means I have nothing to look forward to. I have nothing to hope for. Hope and expectations are intrinsically tied together. 
you hope they do it. The only reason you have hope is because you think there's a reasonable possibility or at least some possibility. You know what they called a shred of hope? A shred of hope. Because you think even if it's unlikely, there's a chance, which means there's some level of expectation. It could happen. And so if I live in a world that doesn't have any disappointment, that means I live in a world that has zero expectations, which means I'm living in a world that has no hope. I don't want to live in that kind of world. Yeah, sure. I'm not going to be disappointed. Instead, I'll just be numb to everything for the rest of my life. That's no way to live. Just correctly manage the expectations and correctly manage the disappointment when you get it. Don't try and ignore it all. So that was Chris's email, three main parts. I thought they were all good. I wanted to make sure I commented on them. And at the very end, last summer, I made a comment that people could try to guess who I was. And he made some comments that I thought were funny. I'm going to read them here. He said, first off, highly improbable is that Mrs. Nolan is the actual Bruce Nolan. She writes the pods and you merely read them. The ultimate way to keep the FBI off your trail. This falls in the bucket of food for thought and other live appearances. You may have remembered that one time I could not speak and I literally typed out each sentence of the pod and recorded it with Mrs. Nolan. She did a pod by reading words that I was typing out on a sheet so I could still deliver a pod. It was just read by somebody else. So actually the inverse of this was true. Another highly improbable guess he had was you are a robot programmed around logic and statistics with the purpose of producing Bill's content while keeping your existence a secret. This falls into the highly improbable bucket because you've mentioned this theory before on why would a robot built on logic with the goal of secrecy do something so illogical? Or maybe that's the entire point. Maybe it's reverse psychology. (laughs) He says, someone improbable, you're a professor. You have a deep knowledge of passion for mathematics, philosophy, and linguistics, which is why I consider this idea. But those three fields are so different, I feel it ends up working against the theory. So I'll put this one somewhat improbable. You are, in fact, my Uncle Bruce. You have referred to yourself as Uncle Bruce on numerous occasions. The biggest flaw in this theory is I don't have an Uncle Bruce that you know of. Somewhat probable. You have submitted an almighty take or a herd mentality question under your real name, partially because it was something you wanted talked about and partially for your own amusement. Okay, would you like a fun little treat? I have submitted a herd mentality question to Joe Marino. I will not tell you whether it was on my real name or not but I have submitted a herd mentality question. That has happened. The next theory is you have at least once in your life given a speech of some sort in the form of a crowd of significant size. Could be a presentation, officiating a wedding, keynote speaker, a sermon. With your abilities and order and charisma, it would be a waste if you haven't. That is a correct statement. I have, at least once in my life, given some sort of speech in front of some sort of crowd. That tells you nothing about me, but it's a true statement. I thought that was funny. Quick note regarding the rest of your email, Chris. I did read it. I did not block you on Twitter. I actually went, after I read your email, I went and looked it up. I'm like, oh, no, no, you're still following me on Twitter. I see it. So I don't know what happened there. I don't know if you why you can't see my tweets. Maybe you accidentally muted me or something. But you still follow me on Twitter, and I can still see your stuff. So I know I didn't block you. But maybe you accidentally blocked me. Or maybe you're listening to this, and you decide to go block me now because you hated everything I talked about for the last few minutes. Well... In that case, I guess I just say, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.
Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.